Are you a fan of the TV show The Blacklist? Then you should listen to The Blacklist Exposed podcast. But don't take my word for it. Hello, Garys. This is Susan Blumert. Hey, this is Amir. Hi, it's Megan Boone. This is Hisham Taufik. Hey, this is John Bokenkamp. Welcome to The Blacklist Exposed. The Blacklist Exposed. Blacklist Exposed. The Blacklist Exposed. The Blacklist Exposed on Golden Spiral Media. Hear these great interviews and more by downloading the Blacklist Exposed app for iOS or Android and get all the case profiles at theblacklistexposed.com. episode of the star trek discovery podcast i'm brian and i'm adam and tonight we are here for episode three of season one titled context is for kings this was had uh had a lot of credits on it actually uh the story was written by brian fuller the original showrunner and then also the New showrunners, Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts. And then the teleplay was also by Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts, along with Craig Sweeney. And then directed by one of the executive producers, uh, and he co-wrote the first episode, I believe, Akiva Goldsman. All right. So um, time for some news ratings and info which we give through the shipwide announcement. All right. First with some errata. Incorrect. This is a little errata. I don't even know if it was last episode, but I remember mentioning the Grissom. Well, the Grissom was not like the uh, Reliant. It was actually a, an Oberth class vessel. So I look that up today because I was trying to, I was trying to ascertain what the deal was with the uh, numbers of discovery, which are kind of low, or at least I thought, but turns out that they're probably not because there's no rhyme or reason to them. Anyway, um, if you watched after Trek, I don't know if you did. Yeah, I caught it this week. Okay. It was tolerable. I I was going to say, I think it was better this time. Uh, Matt Mira, the, the host seemed to be a little more, um, little less geek and a little more host this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Well, they they uh, had on there the real Paul Stamets. I think that's how you say his name. Um, they they actually there's actually actually a person named Paul Stamets who is a mycologist that the character of Lieutenant Paul Stamets, who's an astromycologist. Uh, that's where they, uh, I guess, uh, Brian Fuller got his inspiration from. So I didn't realize that until uh, after Trek, but I thought that was kind of cool. Because normally when they do that, they don't like, say, use the same person's name exactly. They 
vary it a little bit, you know, but yeah, it's a very direct reference. Yeah. All right. Well, we actually have some ratings, um, actually courtesy of Mark Decote, who has a, a strong influence on this episode. <laughs> Thanks to a, a wonderful voicemail that you'll hear. Um, but he sent us uh, a link to the ratings for last week's episode that were published by Bell Media. And the show got the was the most watched audience ever on Canadian specialty TV. So the first episode got 1.17 million. And then the second episode actually ended up with 1.2 million. It actually went up a little bit. Which, uh, when you combine it, that's on the space channel in Canada. And it also simulcast on CTV. So when you combine the two, it got 2.2 million viewers. And that is actually the third most watched debut this season. And I, now I don't know what it compares against because the season's not that long so far, but, uh, and then. Actually, still good ratings. Um, space had an inner space countdown special, which I've heard a lot of good things about that show, but, uh, you know, seeing that I don't live in Canada anymore, I don't watch it, <laughs> but they had a countdown special and it got 863,000 viewers, which like you compare this against, uh, talking dead when fear the walking dead is on, which, you know, the other show that I'm podcasting about right now. And that show doesn't even get, uh, sometimes 863,000 viewers. So, you know, and that's 10 times the market. So, you know, that's pretty impressive, I think. Yeah, very much so. Are you, are you surprised by the turnout for the show? Well, no, I, cause honestly, I think that it would be getting similar ratings in, in the States if, you know, it was, it was available to everybody, mm-hmm. you know? So I've, I've talked to a couple of my hardcore Trek friends and they've got that same basic question we covered towards the end of last week's show, which was, is it worth paying money to see Star Trek? What'd you tell them? I mean, our answer is, is an unqualified yes, but yeah. given it's the first time that we've ever had to, that's where the hesitation comes from. And I think we can say even more so after this, this week, uh, more unqualified. Yes. So speaking of that, what did you rate Context is for Kings? Uh, I gave it 9.25 Twisted Starfleet Corpses out of 10. I thought this was an incredibly strong episode. Um, had a lot going for it. Usually a criticism of a, sh- of a show would be that it doesn't feel like Star Trek. But I think in this case, it was Trek enough, but also introduced enough elements that we don't usually see in Star Trek to keep it fresh and interesting. Yeah, I, I thought so as well. That's a good way to put it. It, it was, uh, it certainly felt like Star Trek. I like that we finally got to see the discovery, finally got to see the captain and, you know, many of the characters. There's still, I think, one of the leads that we haven't met, uh, Lieutenant Tyler, I think, Ash Tyler. But other than that, we've, we've met all of the characters now. And, you know, we've seen Discovery and we kind of know where the story's going. So I also gave it nine and a quarter. So 9.25 non-Vulcan number crunchers. 
Oh, is that what the shorthand is here in the show notes? Yeah. I was trying to interpret the emojis, but I, I'm not fluent. I'm sorry. Well, that's the intention, you see, because it, it's the element of surprise. So I also gave it 9.5 shushing Klingons or 9.25 Gorn skeletons. So many Easter eggs in there. Yep. All right. We got a couple of other ratings from our listeners. Uh, once you give Nathan's. Well, Nathan, surprisingly, only gave it six and a half black alerts out of 10. And uh, Mark gave it five and a half lurkers out of 10. So the listeners did not think it was nearly as strong an episode as we did. Yeah. So let's, we were, uh, we're an audience divided. The hosts think it's better than the listeners, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, our next uh, segment has been called Awesome Sauce. So I will play the Awesome Sauce jingle. But, Ruthie, I hate to tell you, we are going to retire you, because from now on, we are going to call this segment, yes, as in, yes! <laughs> so, we're going to, the, right now we just have the one yes, but we're going to incorporate many different yeses from uh, Star Trek of past and present. Um, that one... In case you don't recognize it, is Data doing the fist bump with uh, yes uh, on um, generations? So, yeah, if uh, I'm sure over the literally thousands of hours of Star Trek television and movies that are out there, um, we're going to miss a couple. So, any listeners who have suggestions to add to that montage, let us know. Yeah. So, we have only the one yes right now, but we will add more for next time. Anyway, so uh, normally we have listener awesome sauce or yes, listener, yes. Um, but we got some in uh, voicemail from from Mark, so we're going to play those in a little bit. But why don't you start with your yes? Uh, my first yes has to go for the Gorn skeleton. What a great throwback and Easter egg that was, huh? Yep. Yes. Brian, what about you? What was your first? Um, and I know that we're going to get some feedback uh, disagreeing with me on this, but I have to give my first yes to Tilly. I I love her character. She is, and this is a this is a term that I don't normally use. I actually said this to you earlier today. I don't use this one, but I feel it's appropriate to say that she's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely yeah i i love her character it, you know you could say that she's kind of like the the show's uh barkley you know from mm -hmm. mostly from ne next generation but i know he was on voyager too um you know but she's us i mean she's she she was doing the kind of things that I could see myself doing like being all excited and, you know, just saying stupid stuff and, you know, Oh, well, the only M Michael I know is a woman is uh Michael, the mutineer. That wouldn't be you. Would it <laughs> <laughs> foot in mouth? That was a great scene. Yep. Oh, and then babbling to cover up how uh, nervous she was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, 
you know, I, I have a feeling she's going to uh, not be like that by the end of the season. She will, you know, have uh, matured, but, but I am looking forward to seeing her character grow. And I'm really hoping that someday she does become captain and it isn't like, um, like an aliens movie or, you know, one of those things where they say, you know, I can't wait to get home and see my wife and kid. Oh yeah. The famous last words. Yep. And they get blown up, you know? So hopefully she will become captain and she will not die tragically. It's hard to know who's going to get it in this series because we don't have red shirts. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was looking back and um, Ensign, was it Ensign Connor from? Yep. Uh, yeah. He was a copper shirt. So, you know, I think copper is equivalent to red in uh, in this show. So we'll have to we'll have to remember that going forward. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Copper is the new red. Got it. I still don't get though. They should have. They should have just like made instead of making it silver, like make it a turquoise, you know, kind of trim, and instead of copper, make it kind of a red trim, and then it would have kept everything the same, and people would not. Yeah, well, I don't know. That that's that's to me that's not much to complain about, but it, I don't know. Would just be nice in a strange way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, continuity does suffer a little bit, but uh, the design on its own is actually very nice. So yeah. you need to take the good with the bad, I suppose. I, I'm over it. I, I'm, I'm at this point. I'm pretty much over those design changes and all that. I'm just, I'm just sitting back and watching the story. So, and I think that's where everybody should be at this point. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you got another one? Yeah, I'm gonna give my yes to the creature. I just put that in in air quotes because. There, there's been a long history of creatures in Star Trek, but it's always due to budget or storytelling reasons. You always see the aftermath and you never actually see the creature. We've seen wrecked ships and all these things that have happened as a result, but it's always been aftermath and never the thing. And I thought that the thing chasing them through the hallways in this episode was just fabulous. They showed just enough to keep it scary, but not enough to give it all away. So aces to the team on uh, setting up that whole sequence. And then they captured the darn thing, which I don't know what to make of. Yeah. Like, what's the point? Yeah. That's a whole series of questions I still have too. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, my, well, it was actually part of your rating, but I have to give a yes. And I didn't do this before. So this will cover both of us. Yes. Yes. There, there's two of us, two of them. Uh, nice. The twisted bodies on on the USS Glenn, which which I'll also say, I think it was kind of cool that they named the star the starship the Glenn. You know, seeing that John Glenn died recently, and you know, um, all the stuff that he did for the space program and all of that stuff. Yeah, that was a great homage. Yeah, um, but the all the twisted bodies, like. You know, it looked like melted Stretch Armstrongs. <laughs> that is something that I, we've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen anything like that before. So I, 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 any show that I could think of, you know, I know I heard a couple people find it kind of gross and horrific, but 
I liked it. I well, you know, I do I do a sh- show on you know podcasts on zombies, so I probably should like it. But I I really did like it. A lot. I was surprised they went there. I mean, it's one thing to say that this is a darker vision for Star Trek, but to show innards become outards and just contorted faces and all the sort of those I could see why, like they said on After Trek, that they got horror movie makeup artists to conceive and create those props because that was really twisted stuff. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> all right. Uh, it is now time for what we have been calling weak sauce. You're worthless and weak. But instead, we are going to call it. No! <laughs> that is Captain Picard in the episode Sarek, which I guess is appropriate, kind of, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Burnham. It's, uh, I don't think it's quite as good, but. It's this show, so we want to also use this one. And that's, of course, when she gets beamed away from the Klingon flagship. Away from. Did that ship ever get a name, by the way? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I thought I just missed it somewhere. Speaking of that, I'll say that since you brought that up. Why are they calling it Battle of the Binary Stars? Are you telling me that those stars don't have names? Every. Every star system has a name. Why doesn't this one have a name? Oh, yeah, that's that was kind of a groan-worthy moment in the script for me. I, I actually could have put that in my no section. No! Well, you just did. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. And then the listener knows. Uh, Mark also has some no's. He actually came up with alternative names for his, since we hadn't decided at the time. Uh, so you'll hear those in the voicemail. But uh, aside from that, we didn't get any other weak sauce. So what do you have for weak sauce? Uh, it was kind of hard to come up with any for this one. This was such a strong episode, but um, I've, I've got to go with the opening scene. It it seems like they really don't know how to start out these series, uh, much like the scene of uh, Philippa and uh Burnham walking through the desert to start off the pilot episode that really had no correlation to the rest of the episode. Uh, The prison shuttle peril in this one, I get that they were trying to build some sort of suspense in the moment, maybe revealing a character moment for Burnham, but there really was no point in having the shuttle fall under attack or whatever from species GS 54 and having the pilot die all of a sudden just to serve as what a, a means to reveal the discovery in a grander fashion. It just, it seemed completely unnecessary. Yes. Um, we'll have more on that. Um, in fact, I don't want to give my no, um, this episode because it's covered in the show in the, uh, voicemail. So what about your oh. next one? Um, the other one was the fact that we've had three episodes so far and the, title of each episode has been mentioned on air every time now battle of the binary stars was not mentioned in the episode battle at the binary stars but it was mentioned in this episode along with the title of this episode so maybe this is just some sort of joke the writers have and every every episode title is going to make its way into the script but uh, come on people well to that end 
with the name of the next episode. <laughs> I mean, who the heck is going to say the next episode name? Is that, do you think that might be a Klingon says that? <laughs> That's, I, I'm, see, now that I mentioned that, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing if they can work it in there somehow. That would be great. And I hate to say it, but, you know, we talked about this in a previous episode, you know, the way the Klingons speak with, you know, they sound like they got like crackers in their mouth or whatever. Um, it would sound like this. The butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if I know you probably couldn't understand me, um, listeners, but the next episode title is The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. To me, that is not something you normally say in <laughs> in in uh, normal conversation. <laughs> so, that sounds like a Vulcan proverb, though. I can imagine Michael Burnham busting that one out. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. It just—I don't know. It, it's it's a weird thing to say. It, anyway, well, so his context is for kings, but they managed to work it in. I I actually kind of like that uh, the way he said it too. I didn't see it coming. Yeah, it, it's a fine line to deliver. If you didn't title the episode the same thing, <laughs> at least it's not as bad as it used to be with the the other series where they would actually display the episode title in the uh, prologue segment. Well, you know, or actually, no, they would they would actually have it right after the opening theme. And something I've noticed, the Orville is doing that now. They are actually displaying the episode titles. Of course, it's, you know, much more of a throwback, which, by the way, we're not uh, you know, covering the Orville, but I caught up on it since the last episode. And I got to say, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good yeah, show. As, surprisingly. I'm, I'm enjoying it as long as I actually have to tune out the humor. Because minus the humor, it's it's really solid next generation-esque writing. The, the jokes seem out of place. Yeah, if anything, I think the jokes are like the weakest part of the show. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, um, I think that's it for our uh, nose. So now it's time for opening hailing frequencies. And as mentioned, we got a fantastic voicemail. We're just going to sit back and listen from Mark. So here we go. Hey, Brian. Hey, Adam. Mark from Ontario, Canada here. This is my feedback for the third episode of Star Trek Discovery. Now, I give this episode. 5.5 lurkers out of 10. Now, why so low? I didn't really think this episode had that much of a Star Trek vibe. Yes, it was a great sci-fi episode, but it just didn't give me that Star Trek vibe. And not to mention, I'm not a fan of horror or suspense films or anything like that. And that's what this one really felt like to me. And that kind of took me out of it. So the episode starts six months later, and the war is in full swing. And by the sounds of it, everybody knows who Michael Brennan is. But what I don't understand is why everyone is blaming Michael for the war. She didn't start the war. She did want to fire first, but that was foiled. And then the Klingons opened fire and started the war. So why is everybody blaming her? Yes, she is a mutineer. I understand that. But even if she hadn't, the war would still be started. Unless they're blaming her for that one Klingon she killed on that Klingon star thing, whatever that was. But that was in self-defense. 
And the reception she got from that redhead and from Saru, who both served with her on the Senjo, I just found wasn't what I expected. And First Officer Saru even made a comment to her about protecting his captain more than Michael protected hers. I found that was way out of line. You guys said it in the last podcast. They sent two women, yes, capable women, but still just two women, into a hostile ship containing a much stronger foe. And really, there's nothing Michael could have done to save her captain. So blaming her for that was out of line. Moving along. In this episode, we were introduced to what looks like it's going to be Michael's roommate, Cadet Sylvia Tilly. Now, I watched this episode twice, and all I can say after two watchings is I sure hope that Tilly doesn't become the Jar Jar Binks of the Star Trek universe, because so far, I don't really like her at all. Now, at the end of the episode, when the prisoner ship was getting ready to warp out, and we saw Saru in the mess hall, and those things on the back of his head stuck out, was that him predicting another death? I don't know, there was no context there. Now, we were also introduced to Captain Lorca in this episode, and I have to tell you, after one episode, I don't trust him. That's something I don't like. I want to be able to trust him, but right now I don't. He said Starfleet gave him full discretion to do whatever he wants in regards to the war. And when Michael questions him about her her sentence and, and going back to prison, he said, oh, don't worry about Starfleet, what they say. It's as if he has no regards. He thinks he's above authority. I don't know. There's just something about him. Maybe he'll grow on me. But at this point, I don't like him. And that's bothering me because I should be liking the captain of the Discovery. Now, speaking of the Discovery, we find out that the ship is working on this new travel technology, this biophysics, whatever things that they were talking about. And all I kept thinking about this entire time is I hope this isn't an ongoing storyline with this, because we all know from the original series, Next Generation, Voyager, so on and so on, that that technology never comes to pass, where they could, in a blink of an eye, travel across to different quadrants, to different sectors. So yes, it's interesting, but I hope they do move on to something else, because we know that it never comes to pass. Now, in your podcast, you have your awesome and weak sauce sections. I'm going to call mine my turbo lift up and turbo lift down. Now, my turbo lift up, I have to say, the special effects so far in this series are amazing. They're on par, if not even better, than some of the movies. Now, something else that I really liked was the site-to-site transport. Why didn't they use that more in the other series? They have the capability. In all the other series, they spent so much time walking. What a waste of energy. And my final turbo lift up is Captain Lorca had a tribble on his desk. That was so cool. Enough said. Okay, turbo lift down moments. The pilot that lost her tether, they never said whether or not they rescued her. I would have liked to get at least some confirmation that when they tracked her beam the ship in, they had actually grabbed the pilot as well. Now, when they went over to the Discovery sister ship, they found Klingons on board. But where is the Klingon ship? Did the ship just leave and leave its dead on board? And if not, where is the ship? Is it still there, cloaked? I don't know. And speaking of the dead Klingons, that creature that Lorca ended up bringing on to Discovery afterwards, what is that thing? There was no explanation. Now, I know we're probably going to get something in future episodes, but I'm just trying to figure out. It has nothing to do with this new travel technology. There was no explanation as to why that creature was on board, unless, like Discovery and Saru telling Michael that they are a ship that can do up to 300 different experiments, maybe that was one of the other experiments that went awry. I don't know. But hopefully we'll get some more information about that in future episodes. So that's my feedback for this time. Keep up the great work, guys. Mark from Ontario, Canada, out. All right. Well, another fantastic voicemail from Mark. Um, Mm -hmm. 
Well, it was where. Where do you want to begin? <laughs> yeah, because last time I read it cold or heard it cold. This time I was like, no, I want to make sure <laughs> take some notes because there's a whole bunch of stuff to to talk about from what you brought up. I got to say though, I disagree with you about the Star Trek vibe. I definitely got the vibe. It might be you know a different vibe, and certainly there was some mystery involved, but. I don't know that this this definitely felt like a Star Trek story to me. What about you? Yeah, I've been trying to pin down exactly what that Star Trek vibe is, and I think part of it is the sense of wonder at the possibilities of science, and the other half is that we have seen situations like this before, where crews have gone in to investigate the aftermath of an incident on a ship. So the whole ghost ship aspect is something we've seen before. The fact that there was still something there lurking for them on the ghost ship is a little bit of a twist, but it's not completely uncharted waters. Yeah. All right. So one thing you mentioned, too, was uh, you wondered why everyone still, you know, blames Burnham for the war. And I think it's a combination of a few things, but you made a a good point in in the notes, uh, Adam. So I wanted you to kind of lead off with that point. Yeah, I think we uh, we're kind of in agreement on this one that it seems to be that whatever story the galaxy at large knows about what happened that day isn't an accurate depiction. Because as as we've said, and as Mark said in his voicemail, there's plenty of reasons to believe that everything Burnham did was above board. It, it all had good reasons, and it was you know from a positive moral center. But whatever version got out to the public was not an accurate portrayal. I think it was more a matter of um, a few disconnected events being put together and the court of public opinion decided one thing, regardless of what the actual facts of the event were. Yeah. The point that I, I wrote down was that, you know, first of all, I'm pretty sure that not everyone knows the details of it. Um, and I think it's like you, you take a, you know, attempted mutiny, first mutineer in Starfleet. And by the way, a hundred years and there's never been a mutineer in Starfleet. That's, that's kind of amazing. Stretching plausibility a it, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you have a, you know, mutineer with B, the death of Captain Georgiou, uh begets C. It's all her fault. So now that one, one thing uh, that I have to say, though, that I think she does deserve some fault, because I don't think that the reason why they're in war is because of her mutiny. I think it was because she killed um, Takovma or Takuvma. Because um, mm-hmm. I went back before the uh, episode on Sunday and I rewatched episode two. And when Burnham picks up the phaser, it was originally on the blue setting, which I assume is stun. And she picked it up and she changed it to red before she fired at Kuvma. So she made the point that she was, you know, that they, they should capture Kuvma. And, you know, I don't know if it was a question of rage or what i that's what i assume it was rage or just emotional distress and she changed the setting and she killed him so i think if anything killing him 
was the reason why they're at war because she made him a martyr, just like she said not to do. Yeah, she fulfilled her own prophecy in that respect. Yeah. Uh, I think that ties into her motivation as a character in general, because we've seen this a couple of times where it seems, especially in this episode, where she is just kind of checked out. And uh, I think that was the purpose of the the shuttle scene in the beginning was to show that even as they're facing what seems like certain death, she's not going to do anything about it. I think that what she's kicking herself over are not her choices, but um, the fact that, like Saru said, uh, she wasn't able to save her captain. I think she still bears the guilt of, of Georgiou's death. And I think that she should in, in, in a way like, you know, we made the point last time that, you know, they shouldn't have gone over, you know, just two of them. Now, mm-hmm. how much is that? How much of that problem is, or the fault is hers for, you know, for not recommending that? Or is it Georgiou's for, you know, only going over there with Burnham? Because again, I have to think that there were other uh, officers that, you know, other crewmen that, that could have gone there as a, as an assault team and been able to uh, get to Kuvma or certainly, you know, yield a different result. But the other part I, w- I was thinking about this and, you know, she did what she did. You know, she gave, uh, gave Georgiou the, uh, you know, Vulcan neck or nerve pinch, but, you know, she could have handled that a much different way and supported the captain, you know, even if she, you know, made the same decision to not fire first. Because the other thing that I think really had something to do with, uh, you know, them firing was her being conciliatory, saying, you know, we, you know, we come in peace. And that just, you know, set the set to Kuvma off and he started firing, you know. So if, if, um, she had, if Burnham had recommended to Georgiou uh, that, you know, they take a more threatening, you know, or a more offensive tone instead of a more, you know, peaceful tone, it could have ended differently, even without firing first. You yeah. Know? I, th- I think she feels, I think Burnham feels overall that her duty as first officer, and it sounds like Saru agrees with this, is to protect her captain. So she failed in her duty as a first officer, regardless of, of what she was intending with her actions. Ultimately, she was responsible for making sure that actually Georgiou's fate was not to die. Yeah. Uh, so uh, continuing, I, I can understand why you don't trust or like Lorca, you know, because there, there definitely is, you know, some some odd things going on with him you know we see that that weird menagerie you know with the gorn skeleton and all the other <sighs> remains of various you know things uh, cardassian voles i saw yeah, on yeah. track that was one of them yeah uh, there was a couple others they listed i forget what all they they put in there but it's basically just uh an easter egg trove yeah and then of course you know his his new cat his new kitty cat Oh, right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely can see that. And, you know, he's also showing the fact that he manipulates and, and you know, that kind of thing. And 
certainly, you know, I, I think there is some fear that he runs his ship by. But so that part, I agree with you. But when I heard you say that you hope that Tilly doesn't become the Jar Jar Binks of, of Star Trek, it just made me sad. <laughs> I was, I, I'm like, I don't, I, I really like the character and I really want to see her, you know, blossom. So, you know, I, and like you said, Adam, you know, she was, I think you said it, uh, she was, you know, the comic relief that she needed to be. Maybe that was before we started recording. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She brings some brevity to, I mean, the introduction of this ship, you'd expect it to be this, this happy, wondrous sort of thing for the audience to witness the, the marvels of this new ship. But what you find out is that there's a whole lot going on here that might not be above board and Lorca's at the head of that. So to have all this shady business going on around it, you need this little ray of sunshine in the middle just to kind of lighten the load, you know? Yeah. So a couple other things that you brought up, um, you wondered about like Saru's, you know, things going back and in the, in the, uh, after track, there's a clip from there where Burnham calls them threat ganglia, I think was the name of them. Mm -hmm. So I I believe that those ganglia came out because he sensed that she hadn't left and, and you know, the, that she's dangerous. And uh, I think that's kind of what, what brought it on. Um, That creature made me think of the, and this is, I think universally thought of as one of the worst Voyager episodes. Um, threshold. Oh no, you're going there. <laughs> what if it is, you know, uh, some of the crew or one of the crew of, of, uh, the Glen that have like morphed into some creature thanks to, you know, going too fast. <laughs> so we're going back to giant salamanders. God, I hope not. <laughs> This thing was a lot more ferocious than a giant salamander. I give him credit for that. Like I, like I had noted, um, for any video game fans out there who are fans of the Nintendo franchise Metroid, it's a pretty common trope in those video games where there's usually some sort of science experiment going on that goes wrong. The research team loses contact and then people get sent in to find out what happened to the research team and then they disappear and then your your hero, Samus Aran, comes in to really clean things up and you find this nightmare of science gone awry kind of taking place. This, the whole sequence on the Glen kind of reminded me of that video game series in general. So for me, it was just pure eye candy. <laughs> well, okay. And way better than giant salamanders. Oh, anything's better than giant salamanders. Um, one thing you uh, brought up that I have to agree with, though, is the... Uh, the thing that the the spores are essentially a new you know method of travel, the uh, organic warp drive, and, and the thing that kind of makes me you know sad about that is that we know you know assuming assuming the timeline isn't somehow skew, screwed up, which I have have something about that uh, in a bit. Um, that that. Uh, we know it's not going to work because, you know, we've already seen the 24th century and we know that they don't have organic warp drives and they know they can't pass, you know, travel 90 years in, 
90 light years, sorry, in what, what was it, 1.2 seconds? Something mm-hmm. like that, 1.3 seconds? A ridiculous, uh, short, ridiculously short amount of time for a lot of light years. <laughs> so, um, you know, we know ultimately that's going to fail. So, you know, it's kind of anticlimactic. To a degree, but between Enterprise and other Trek shows, we've seen that, especially with this show, the reason I'm not too worried about it is because the writers and the production crew have been so insistent on their attention to detail and not screwing up the timeline that if they're introducing something that doesn't jive, I have faith that it's going to uh, it's going to pay off somehow. They're going to resolve that. And I hope it's not just, well, you know, that didn't work. Let's go on to something else. Now, this would be a good time to bring up um, uh, co-worker uh, Gabe, who <laughs> has talked to me about his alternate uh, uh you know, time travel theory and the fact that, you know, that the, um, the Kelvin timeline was already screwed up before it actually, you know, did its thing because, um, you know, the original polluters of the timeline were the Borg in first contact coming back to 2063. So that just by itself could have, you know, s- screwed up the technology that exists existed after that, you know, and move things much, fo- much further forward. <laughs> when he told me that theory, I'm like, you just blew my mind. <laughs> that it, it could be, it could be. They never really went back and touched on any sort of ramifications from that movie. They just moved on to the others and, you know, shut the franchise down. So it, it really would be a kind of genius way to pull something from the quote unquote future that solves their problems of being in the past with different technology. Heck, that might even, no, no, that wouldn't quite explain Khan in Into Darkness, would it? Because he's a product of late 20th century genetic engineering, so Khan still should look like Ricardo Montalban. That was actually one part of Enterprise in the fourth season that I really didn't like, and that was the three-part episode with the augments, you know, basically the the other... I believe they were embryos of the same, you know, stock that uh, brought Khan into the world that mm-hmm. were raised by, you know, what was it Eric Soong, the, um, you know, yeah, rel- yeah. you know, distant relative of uh, Nunyan Soong, who, of course, created Data. Yeah, pulling all that together just reeked of fan fiction gone awry. Well, the thing that I didn't like, not not just that, but uh, that they made it so that if you look at those those uh, augments, you know they they have the ripped, um, you know the ripped clothes and stuff like that. It was just like just goofy this, and I never really bought the idea of the augments in the first place because th- they don't act superior; they just act stupid. Like with their, you know, ego and their, you know, they they don't they don't act as intelligent as they're supposed to be. Yeah, that's the only thing they seem to have enhanced is their arrogance. Yeah, but um, okay. So a couple of final things. Uh, I love the triple too. I guess that the triple was a neutered triple. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, the one Tribble in the entire universe that does not reproduce. <laughs> Very handy. And he brought up a question that I wondered, too. Uh, the pilot. We don't see that the pilot died. We don't see that they res- rescued her. So what the heck happened? It, I After hearing the voicemail, I went back to check that scene to see if maybe she was floating around in the windshield or something when the tractor beam went on. She's just gone. So I don't know if they forgot about her entirely or we're not supposed to care, but they, they should have known that with this audience, we're going to nitpick every last detail. Because, I mean, I mean, there wasn't a lot of time that passed between, you know, her tether getting getting severed and Discovery, you know, picking them up with a tractor beam. So, you, you know, I mean, it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely a possibility that they could have beamed her in but we don't see it. Yeah. There's just so much about that. That makes no sense. Like, okay. So they're flying in this storm with, with this species that feeds on electricity when apparently just above them is clear space and the discovery waiting for them. So why are they in there? I don't know. Uh, what causes the pilot's tether to break? I don't know. Um, and then why does the autopilot immediately fail as well? I don't know. Yeah, it, it was a weak part of an otherwise strong episode. That's the only reason I knocked a, even three quarters of a point off, because that scene alone was just a real head scratcher. Yeah. All right. Do you got anything else about uh, Mark's voicemail before we move on? Uh, no, I think uh, let's let's uh, give Nathan Smith's feedback a little bit of airtime here. All right. Why don't you give it? <laughs> All right. Um I agree with a lot of what Nathan says here. He says, uh, what a strange show so far. The first two episodes were a movie-length prologue, and now we get into the meat and potatoes of what Discovery is all about. Captain Lorca is a brand new captain that I don't think we've seen before. Jason Isaacs plays him with just the right amount of edge and someone who is driven to win this war at, at any cost. I almost feel this could be a later season DS9 Dominion War episode for a moment. Uh, for the uninitiated, some of the best Trek ever. Burnham's arc is very intriguing. There was a part of me that felt she got out of her sentence just a little too easily, but who knows exactly what the long arc is. There is clearly more information to unfold. The interplay amongst the crew was interesting, with some members definitely being more likable than others. I'm sure this will improve as the show continues. I also had flashbacks to Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, with the look and feel of the episodes, but to my surprise, always felt like Trek. I asked the show to slow down slightly, and this episode definitely did. Doug Jones was a highlight. Great acting. I look forward to next week. I give this episode six and a half black alerts out of ten. Keep trekking, guys. The show sounds great, by the way. Thank you for that last part there, Nathan. Uh, Brian, what do you think about all that? Well, maybe the uh, Battlestar Galactica flashbacks you had were because of Landry. Um, You know, because she was uh, definitely a prominent character in Battlestar Galactica. Um, Mm -hmm. What's her name? Rika Sharma, I think. Oh, it's been a while since I've seen that. But yeah, I in fact, until I read this, I didn't even realize that she was in there. I knew she was familiar from some show, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, I mean, you had a lot of positive things to say, but you only gave it a six and a half. So I'm not not sure where the uh, show lost marks for you, Nathan. But um, I think that. Uh, uh, well, he seems to tell a story. I think he's a little thrown off because of the 
almost duplicitous nature of the show because you've got the the dark undertones of everything that we don't yet know coupled with all the like i said the magic and the wonder of the science experiments going on and all the possibilities that could unfold from all that so all in one episode you had bodies turned inside out with this magical moment of think of the possibilities of this new form of warp travel so it kind of pulls you in both directions at once yeah i mean you know he he's got this um this definite uh what you call it this positive thing i mean you think that he's developing this biological weapon but the fact that he's building um you know a faster warp drive although certainly stamets uh seems to still you know he called him a warmonger you know so yeah uh, so there's definitely you know some resentment there and some some thought that you know they're they're going to use it for bad and uh you know I I just think that I don't know it, it, I, I I'm kind of at a loss here I I don't know what to say other than um I think that I think that you know I do see some Dominion War arc in in this I think maybe some of that negativity or that duplicitous nature is because we're normally we normally see that in other you know like the Cardassians or the, you know, the Dominion, or we see them in other, you know, um, not, not the Federation, you know? So I guess, I guess for that, like there's a lot, it's not black and white, this show, there's some gray, yeah, which, which we're not used to seeing in, in Star Trek. It's, it's usually good guys versus bad guys. Yeah, this whole concept that maybe some of the good guys aren't so good. And, you know, Mark touched on this in his voicemail as well, how um, Lorca, you really don't know about this guy yet, do you? He's clearly got some things that he's hiding. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I got a creepy vibe from him the whole episode. But then when he reveals what they're working on, oh, it's just it's just a mode of transportation. It's not a weapon. Okay. Yeah, and uh, Nathan actually brings up another thing, and we might as well we might as well move that up a little bit. So um, actually Mark had asked about the fact that nobody had brought up the black badges. Okay. And then Nathan brought up something. He says, uh, I suspect that the black badges means that the discovery vessel vessel is a bit off the grid, probably recognized by Starfleet, but not official. I suspect Lorca and his crew dabble in science that is not exactly sanctioned or legal in order to advance science and win the war. I think NCC 1031 is, <laughs> I was trying to figure out why this show, that this, uh, this vessel had a, uh, registry that was kind of low. Like you can compare the Shenzhou, which was NCC 1227. Well, 1031, you would think, is earlier, okay? But mm-hmm. supposedly there is no rhyme or reason to those um, because the one example is the USS Grissom, which was a three-digit. But anyway, uh, and that's, a, you know, that was uh, a later vessel. But anyway, um, 1031, I think, is a, is, a, is a clue there. Section 31. We see the black uniforms, black badges. We've seen this before. We've seen 
the Section 31 in Deep Space Nine. We've also seen it in Enterprise, the early Section 31. They wore black. So that's what I think these these are. I think Section 31 is uh, behind a lot of the things that are going on on the Discovery. And if you think of 1031, Section 31 makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I do love the idea of Section 31. It was one of the best concepts to come out of Deep Space Nine. Do you really think they would be that on the nose with it, though, where everything relating to Section 31 is either going to have their number or the color black associated with it? I mean, for a supposedly black ops organization to actually wear black as a signifier? I think that um, it's very possible because it, it uh, for the, you know, I, and I think... I want to say, was it Picard that originally came across Section Thirty One in the Next Generation, or was it was it Deep Space Nine? I'd have to go back and look on Memory Alpha, but I know that you know they've been around. That we didn't know that they existed originally, you know, in in uh, Next Gen. We know we know that they're in the Kelvin universe because uh, the uh, Khan, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, Cumberbatch played was you know supposedly uh section 31 and um they they have had you know the when they when they've shown them they've been black so i i tend to think that they're these you know i'm I'm putting two and two together and i'm saying they're section 31 so it could it could be something else but i doubt it it's it, it just that seems to go with canon and if they're following canon that seems to follow canon. So I got to think it's section 31. That's, that's where I'm going. I am. I'm, I'm putting my money hard on section 31. If it turns out to be something else, then I will lose my shirt, but (laughs) I feel pretty strongly that we're going to find out that section 31. Now the NCC 1031, that could be a totally different thing. That could be total coincidence, but, um, but, the black uniforms, black badges, got to be, it's got to be Section 31. Yeah, they're really going heavy with the whole black thing between black alert and the black badges and everything. They're, I, black is definitely a signifier of something. Just not sure what it is yet. I, I, I agree with you. I think Section 31 is the most likely explanation, but uh, maybe they'll throw us a curveball on that. Well, I don't know if black alert has to do with Section 31, but I mean, it's, it's very well could be. I mean, I didn't really see anything that, you know, was black about that, except for maybe, you know, if you want to take it, uh, black mold, (laughs) black alert, black mold, you know, but other than that, maybe they serve black beans in the commissary. I don't know. Oh, geez. All right. Um, so Todd is next, um, I I gave uh, Nathan's little you know extension there, but I'll give Todd's feedback as well. Todd said an extra touch I liked was when Burnham didn't get back on the shuttle, and we see Seru in the mess hall, and his tendrils or whatever are on edge. Maybe a callback to him saying his species can sense death. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think it was, and I think it's I. I think they come out not just for death, but for danger. That's my take. 
Yeah, and have you noticed that he seems to be self-conscious about them? Yeah. It, I, I don't know if it's every time they've come out, but it seems like every time they do, he kind of goes and touches to see if they're out and then kind of tries to like push them back in almost. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's something that they've also developed is this sort of sense of humility about them or something. Well, it, it kind of tips them off for one thing. You know, it's, it's kind of uh, exposing your cards, so to speak. That's true. Like, not only does he sense danger, but everyone else sees it. Now, they sense danger, too. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next, we have Stefan. So, obviously, you're not going to try to say his uh, oh, last yeah. name. But we know he's from Sweden. So, hello. Uh, that's that's great that we have listeners in, in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And I know we have them in Australia as well. So, we are international. Canada, U.S., Australia, Sweden, and probably a lot elsewhere. So welcome all. Yes. Anyway, Stefan. All right. Uh, Here's what uh, Stefan says. He says he feels like Discovery is a time traveling ship. I suspect that they picked up that prisoner ship because in the real timeline, Michael Burnham died. Very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, He says when they entered the USS Glenn, some sequence felt like aliens, specifically the 1986 movie, not the 1979 alien original movie uh when the team enter the main building to inspect it though no newt showing up newt by the way not meaning the giant salamanders from threshold but actually the character of newt in the 1986 movie uh stuck with that idea that this is many years later instead of six months was when michael talked with saru and she congratulated him on the promotion so that's picking up the time traveling idea then that uh, it's not truly six months later but rather years later and the ship had traveled in time um he said, it's interesting that Lorca concluded that Michael Burnham picked up on the correct conclusion while Captain Georgiou made the mistake not to listen to Saru or Michael Burnham. Uh, other general points that he makes. Uh, Saru eating blueberries makes him think that uh, Saru is a vegetarian. Uh, says, Cadet Tilly is an expert in theoretical engineering and allergic to polyester. Uh, interesting little character bits there. Commander Landry is chief of security on the USS Discovery. Yeah, we got introduced to her this week. Uh, Lieutenant Paul Stamitz is an expert in astromycology, and Michael Burnham is trained in Vulcan martial art of, uh, oh, I, I can't pronounce Vulcan very well, Susmana. I think that's how you say it. And she read Alice in Wonderland as a kid, and that made her understand that the world ain't always logical. She also quotes Alice while escaping the monster in the Jeffrey's tube. Uh, Captain Lorca being sensitive to light. That's an interesting little character bit as well. And, uh, uh, Brian, you had a, a bit of a uh, take on that one. Yeah, I, I think that may mean that he can't go on away missions, at least to start, because of his uh, light sensitivity. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see where they go with that, because it was part of his introductory scene and then never touched on again, at least in this episode. So uh, apparently there were no changing light levels in the rest of the episode. Yeah, um, lots of little character wrinkles in here. Uh what did you think about the allergy that uh, they gave Cadet Tilly? Do you think that was necessary? Well, talk about like, you know, a character trait from today. I mean, <laughs> and for that matter, you know, it seems like it seems like kids these days are allergic to everything. <laughs> you know, really? It, you know, it, it, it compared to how I remember things growing up, you know, um, and I'm sure, you know, I what are you about 10 years a little more than that, maybe. 
uh, younger than me. I, even then, I don't think that allergies were as commonplace as they seem to be today. Mm-hmm. But um, I, it's just that, you know, it seems like people are allergic to everything these days. And so it, it felt much like, you know, a character from from, you know, 2017 thrown into, you know, 2256 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It might be 2257 after this. But that ties into your point about her being the audience's eyes for all this, though. Yeah. So that part of it, I, I, I really liked. So, so I, it is a it is an interesting, you know, combination. And the fact that uh, she still snores. <laughs> so and drools and drools. Uh, by the way, I thought that whole breath thing was a, a, a bit of a. That that doesn't even seem like a good way of, you know, um, security to me. Yeah, there was. I I wish I could remember who it was or what production it was. There was some. I think there was a movie that it was a spoof on Star Trek and sci-fi in general, and they used breath identification and someone that they, they were able to like synthesize a spray and fool the sensor with it. I just yeah, who wants to do that? Who wants to be breathing all over the equipment? I thought it was I thought it was rather strange. There's a strange choice there. You know, I I could see you know, we've seen retina scans which, you know, we kind of do that you know, we have I know with our phones we can do iris scans. <laughs> so yeah. um so it's, you know, I I don't know. And of course thumbprint and all that stuff. Uh, to me it was a weird thing. I've never, I've never really heard that as you, you know, considered a, a valid method of security. But who knows? Yeah, well, apparently, eyeballs and fingerprints and everything else we can think of in the future can be faked. But your breath is truly your own. All right. Well, we got one more bit of feedback, and that is from Twitter. A uh, contributor to my walking dead podcast ken from chicago uh he said star trek dsm star trek discovery episode three is at last the hashtag star trek i and i think many many fans have long been waiting for so obviously ken agreed with us yeah i would back that up entirely um my brother is the skeptic of the the family when it comes to newer star trek he believes that if it ain't kirk it ain't right um and i i think i finally got him on board with this because i told him i said uh you absolutely have to check out this show now and he said why what's so great about it i said well you know only if you like a horror conspiracy action uh mystery movie in your star trek would you find this any good he says oh i guess i will have to give that a look then so, yeah, I think they're pulling in a much broader audience with this one. Finally, this episode really cemented this as something that people can get on board with without actually having to be steeped in the lore of Star Trek first. All right. Well, that seems to be it for feedback. So it's our turn. So what do you want to start off with? Well, um, actually, we had a bunch of discussion points, but as we were discussing before we uh, hit record here, uh, it seems like a lot of the talking points that we had were the same ones that our audience had this week. Um, so we've got a, a lot of points about section 31, yeah, um, which we've already talked about, but there was a good edit 
the in the uh, in the cold open, Brian, that you noticed compared to the trailer that they showed for the preview of this week? Yeah, um, the I don't I don't know her name. I didn't hear it, but the Asian uh, female inmate, she said something like that. Um, they you know eight thousand were killed in the first two days. And I thought that that was kind of a strange thing to say because, you know, we see the, the battle and it did not occur over two days. It was pretty, is a pretty quick, you know, kind of thing. So I noticed in, you know, the, the version that actually aired that they did not, she did not say over two days. She just said 8,000 people were killed. And I thought that was a good edit. Yes, definitely. Um, when I first heard that in the preview, I was thinking, wow, this, this, oh, if we, if we only had the soundbite from Anchorman with their fight at the end, uh, wow, that really escalated quickly. Um, yeah, 8,000 dead in, in two days. That's, um, that's a heck of an opening offensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing I, I said that I observed, and I know it's something we talked about, I think, in the first couple of, episodes before you know the show actually started and that is you know they they dropped the whole like uh federation you know citizens don't uh you know have major conflicts that definitely doesn't seem to be the case in this show uh we hear a lot of you know name calling and you know like you hear uh landry you know talk about like you know taking out the garbage and Stamets, the the things that he said <laughs> to uh, Burnham weren't exactly positive, and you know, in his case, you know, this is a this is a lieutenant, and um, you know, a former commander. You would think that you know they would be beyond all that, but there certainly was uh, some negative things said. Yeah, there's tension for sure, and and as you mentioned earlier. When uh, Stamets refers to Captain Lorca as a warmonger, yeah, especially something like that to say to your cat about your captain. I mean, that's that's the unthinkable. You would never hear, you know, the, them say that about Picard, especially, and certainly not, you know, Archer or Cisco, and not even, you know, the Maquis. I think uh, on Voyager would say something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, there were some differences there with the mock you know the original maquis in the first like you know maybe season or part of the second season but you know that that all went away pretty quickly and everyone was behind janeway so it's just uh, uh, a lieutenant you know like a a fairly senior officer and by the way i don't have this in my notes but like okay that's engineering like where, where's the warp drive and everything else? I, I, we didn't even see that. I would expect- yeah, I, I would expect that he would be the chief science officer because they're running all the experiments. Yeah, I, I, I maybe maybe it falls into engineering because it has to do with propulsion. But you know, still we have to like unless unless the discovery has a non you know you know like this is the the warp drive that they have i don't know but it's just kind of odd that the if this is you know the engine room which i don't think it is it just um 
I don't know. Maybe there's more to the engineering than just what we're seeing here. It, it, uh, it was odd though. I had to, had to question that. Yeah. And they definitely need better security. We, we covered the breath print, but I thought that, uh, Burnham got in there pretty easily. Didn't she? She just walked in. No one turned around and then she just had to spritz something at the sensor and oop, she's in. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like, um, uh, Lorca certainly knew that she had done it. So, you know, you would think that they had some other, you know, security. It was almost like they, they led her through, but I don't know. It, All right. I'll give it a pass on that basis. Otherwise yeah. that was the most in, inattentive, I guess, engineering officer. Um, he yeah. was the only one in the room. So it's very easy to know when the door opens. Yeah. So now, the, the one ahead. that I didn't like so much was uh, Landry. I, I get that security officers are supposed to be kind of harsh, but wow. I mean, between her verbal tirades on the on the prisoners at the beginning, but then did you notice she she loves to slam doors in people's faces? She did it twice in this episode. Yeah. So someone's talking to her, turns around to address her, and she's already shutting the door in their face. Like, wow, what I, I guess they don't teach manners in Star Trek security school. But um did you catch the uh implied chemistry of sorts between Lorca and Landry? I didn't really catch it, but I I did catch it being mentioned on After Trek because it the one thing uh the co-showrunner there Aaron Harbert said is that he said something like, you know, she's way into him, which makes it sound like, you know, um he's he's getting more than security out of her. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah that was uh that was my impression as well it was it it wasn't necessarily a two-way street but she she was more than just uh loyal to him she she had more of a more than a passing interest yeah so we'll see if we'll see if that goes anywhere or maybe it already has and it just hasn't been revealed on the show yet but that could be interesting to have these little alliances set up between crew members yeah and talk about like a non-starfleet thing you know that that seems to be kind of uh, um, frowned upon, you know, sexual relations between, you know, a, a superior officer and, uh, you know, a subordinate. Yeah, that's true. But um, even as far back as Next Generation, they really didn't shy away from this idea. Well, yeah, I mean, Counselor Troy and, and Riker and and for that matter, Counselor Troy and Worf, too. <laughs> mm hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, I, I guess, I guess you're right. Like even, you know, early on with Dr. Crusher, which, you know, I don't understand why Picard and Crusher never got together. Cause I, I thought, I thought originally they were going to be a thing and I kind of liked their chemistry, but I guess, uh, I guess that all got thrown out when she got off the show <laughs> first season. Yeah. But they covered that pretty well in the later seasons when they, Whatever episode that was where they shared the telepathic link. Oh yeah. Yeah. Still and it was just a sense of loyalty that Picard had Picard had to his friend, her husband, to to never move in like that. Yeah. Uh let's see. Um Plus, then he'd be Shut up, Wesley. Dad, and would you really want to take that on? <laughs> uh so one little thing we hear at near the end of the episode, um, Burnham says that uh, she mentioned, you know, her foster mother, Amanda, which we know Sarek, uh, Sarek's wife, Amanda. And, you know, she 
she mentions about like how Amanda read stories to to her and uh, Amanda's son, and we know who Amanda's son was, Spock. So we have to wonder, you know, like of course we we talked about the fact that Spock wasn't always uh, didn't always reveal things, and I was I said I think last time I wasn't sure if. Uh, that one character from Amok Time was his wife or fiance or something, but it was his wife. So we don't even know, we didn't even know that he was married. We didn't know he had a brother. We didn't know that his father was the ambassador. Yeah, they just kind of peel back the layers every time they need a new wrinkle. Yeah. Although it it is possible that uh, during whatever time Michael was under Sarek's tutelage, I suppose, or parentage, however you want to look at it, uh, that Spock was not in the house at that time. So they might not have crossed direct paths. Well, but it sounded like they did, you know, if unless, unless Spock has another brother and it can't, uh, unless that brother was Cybok, but I don't think uh, Amanda was, uh, was Cybok's uh, mother, because I, I believe that Cybok was the half brother of, of uh, Spock. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So maybe Spock has another brother we don't know about. God, I hope not. <laughs> Why not? You know, it worked for Star Trek Five. Let's do it again. Correct. I do not have a brother. Hey, you see? See? I have a half brother. I gotta sit down. <laughs> I I don't know. It just it 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 is uh it is an explanation I don't want to hear. They have to explain. Uh, Burnham, you, you know, uh, already. I don't think they need to explain yet another uh, brother of Spock that we never knew about. That that that's that's just too much. <laughs> so I I heard that uh, I heard that the role of uh, I, I was hoping it was going to be Winona Ryder playing that role, but I guess she's too busy with Stranger Things. I think it's Mia Kirshner playing. The role of Amanda. So we're eventually going to meet Amanda in this show. And I, th- I believe I've, I know she's a Canadian actress. I think where I know her from is, uh, Defiance. I think she was in the first, first season of Defiance. But anyway, um, I digress. Uh, it seemed like Burnham kind of forgot the advice that, uh, Sarah gave her. In, in that second episode, you know, kind of like it was essentially, you know, pick yourself up and, and, uh, you know, take, you know, get past the, the shame that you have and, you know, do something to help your, uh, friends in need. And I think that that extended from, you know, more than just beyond that battle. It, it seemed that. You know, when we when we see her, and this is months later, it seemed like she's you know very withdrawn and depressed, and you know like unwilling to help um, on the ship. You know, she was kind of forced into it originally. Yeah, yeah. She kept on saying how she was going to get back on the prison ship and just write out her sentence. Yeah, which to me would be a waste. Much like you know, uh, Sarek said, you know that 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 was a thing that he couldn't abide on was just a waste of uh resources and and you know a mind like burnham has should not be wasted you know 
Mm -hmm. She just made some really bad decisions. True. And I think that's what shook her to her core. And um, I don't think she forgot what Sarek said, but I think because she failed so spectacularly right after he had told her that, that uh, she lost faith in her ability to do that. Yeah. And made me wonder, um, you know, we, we've seen Vulcans meditate. Does she meditate, you think? Or will we see this? Or is she just kind of given up that kind of the Klingon, or sorry, not Klingon, the Vulcan um, culture, you know? I have to think that she meditates. With all the demons in her past at this point, you'd think she would. You'd think she would. Yeah, that's... um. I mean, there's there's a lot still to be. They said this was going to be a slow burn kind of storytelling where there, there's going to be a lot of questions on a week to week basis. Um, so I hope that all these things do actually resolve themselves in one way or another at, at some point. But um, unfortunately, I don't think we're always going to get all of our questions answered. Um, I mean, I some of my biggest questions were really revolving around the USS Glenn. Yeah, I and that's pretty much I think the last uh, thing that we we have in our notes. So I wanted to get to that. So what, what about your questions? Well, the, the whole site, there was so much information. I mean, that was the, the crux around the entire story was what went on on this ship. Yeah. And, and it flew by so quickly because once they, once they see the ship, they talk about the markings on the hull and then there's Klingons on the ship and there's a creature on the ship and all these things like, it becomes an action piece to where you don't even have time to think about all the background information. But I mean, what, what did cause those markings on, on the ship's hull? Was that a result of the experiment? Um, is that the way that the experiment manifests its effects on the ship compared to the, the twisting of the bodies of the crew? Um, that was my take on it. You know, I, I don't know for sure, but that, that, that was my take on it. Yeah. Um, and then there's Klingons on the ship, so they didn't look like they were they they weren't affected by the experiment. So apparently they came on board after after whatever happened after the incident, we'll call it. Um, and I have to think that they came on trying to salvage the discovery, you know, or the Glen rather. What's that? Salvage the Glen? You mean? Yeah. What did I say? The discovery? Yeah. Yeah, I meant the Glen. I love this trope, by the way. Don't you love it when they always, the, oh, there's a sister ship. It's the cheapest way to invent a new starship is just say, oh, there's two that are identical to this one. It's like when they boarded the Yamato in Next Generation. Yeah. And for that matter, how many times do they do that in TOS? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, it was like every ship was a constitution class. <laughs> That's why the Mirror Universe even exists, because they could allegedly have an entirely different Enterprise, but- Oh, it's not the same enterprise. Totally different enterprise. Switch the bridge a little bit. Yeah. After Trek even said in the production notes that um, it was the Shenzhou, the Discovery, and the Glen are all the same sets, just with slightly different treatments. Yeah. So very efficient production. Good job, guys. Um, yeah. So so what were the Klingons doing there? I mean, yes, probably raiding the ship for technology of some sort, but did they get any? That's a good question. I wonder I wonder if they were able to transmit anything of vital importance before the creature found them. I tend to think not. You know, maybe maybe that creature was part Klingon. Oh, that's a good thought. Maybe that's uh yeah. maybe that's a targ that got mutated. 
God, those targs are ugly. Those things. Hey, perfect for Klingons, though. Perfect for Klingons. Yeah. Um, yes. And you notice how no one really dwelled on the fact that they were Klingons on the ship. They just found some dead Klingons, went back to their ship, and now they're all back to science instead of wondering or figuring out what the Klingons were doing there. Yeah, they, they definitely seem to um, kind of discount the Klingons. They didn't really spend much time on the Klingons. It seemed to be an afterthought. I did like the line, though. Is that Klingon shushing you? <laughs> I did, too. <laughs> that, those are those moments like, like Cadet Tilly that don't really make sense in universe, but they're entertaining for the audience. So I could just kind of un- uncouple my brain for those few seconds and just enjoy it. Yeah. But the creature, the creature has so many questions. Like, what is your theory about the creature? Do you think that that was a product of another experiment on the ship or a mutation based on whatever incident happened here? Or like you said, maybe, maybe the Klingons, it had something to do with it. What do you think? Well, I tend to think that it the the creature was probably uh, another experiment or a byproduct. Uh, excuse me, a byproduct of the experiment. Like I was, you know, I I was half serious about the whole threshold thing, but you know, it it could have been something like that, or uh, at least that, like. I, I think uh, what was his name? Strahl was it? The friend of Stamets, or uh, that was on the Glen. You know, said said that. I think he's. I can't remember the exact name of the term. It was like spurline or something like that. Mm, I did not pick up on those details. I'm I'm looking I'm looking in the memory alpha, and I don't see it listed there. But it was something about like. I think it was like spiraline or something like that. It was almost reminded me of like spirulina or something. But anyway, so something like spiraline 12 is what uh, Stamets have been using. And they were up to spiraline 240 and we're going to spiraline 900. And we, we assume that spiraline 900 was what killed them, you know? So I, I'm thinking that had to do with some kind of concentration or something. Like just the, I don't. We don't know what the number means, but the, I'm I'm just uh, assuming that's what it means. Some kind of like nine hundred parts per million or something like that. Mm-hmm. Too many, and um, it just you know, or it could have been something like you know the the movie The Fly. Like the fly gets in the transporter, and you know, they they ends up mutating. Mm-hmm. And, and again, again, the threshold idea, which. I hate that episode. <laughs> I keep bringing it up, but but um, it it reminded me of that, but in a much better way. You know, it wasn't because we don't want to see um, the crew turn into salamanders. <laughs> yeah the the general premise was sound. I like the concept of uh, maybe we shouldn't travel in this manner because our biological matter does not respond well to that. Right. But to, to say that it triggers hyperevolution and that hyperevolution turns us into salamanders. No. Uh, okay. Yeah. You started with a good premise, but you didn't end up in a good place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm really curious to see what they do with this creature moving forward. Cause I would love to know if it was, if that was this, its existing state or if it was some other type of creature that was mutated 
by the incident or maybe something else entirely. But um, I, I did not get the impression that Lorca was entirely surprised to find it there. Well, it's to, to, to harp back on the whole section 31 theory, we brought it up and we didn't kind of tie things together. Uh, Starfleet never meets the Gorn until arena, which we know is 10 years later or roughly, you know, 10 years later, season one of TOS. So yet Lorca's got a Gorn skeleton. So how'd he get it? Like, has he ever met a Gorn or has he just seen a Gorn skeleton? And how'd he get it? Made me think of section 31 again. Maybe Starfleet's never seen, you know, a Gorn, but maybe section 31 has and just hasn't really, you know, gotten it around. And for whatever reason, you know, Lorca in his creepiness <laughs> has a Gorn skeleton. I don't know. It was just some of the stuff that was in that room made me think shadiness and section 31 again well, yeah he had a half dissected cardassian vole just laying on the table so eh, the guy's ambiguous at best well and i was surprised that you know anything cardassian would be in there because i didn't think that they were around at that time i thought that they didn't show up until around you know maybe just before next gen so that's another strange thing mm-hmm yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of little bits there. I and again, I hope that they tie all this together and actually explain it instead of just throwing stuff in there from all eras of Trek for you know fan service. All right, well that's all I got. You got anything else? Uh, no, I think we've pretty much uh, spent what we've got for this episode. Um, looking forward to the next one as usual. Um, where do you think they're going with the story on the next one? Well, I think it's going to be a continuation trying to, you know, explain more of what's going on on Discovery. And and at some point, they got to swing back to the Klingons. I don't know if that'll be next episode, but um, I I actually, you know, because it was the whole prison thing, I thought we might see mud in this episode, but we didn't. Mm -hmm. So I don't know when he's going to factor back in, but I don't know. I I tend to think it's going to be discovery based again and kind of explain more about what's going on over there, but we'll see. Yeah. I would expect to see a lot more of how Burnham begins to integrate with the crew now that she's officially a member. Uh, One thing uh, ending the episode uh, spot, the 47 segment will not exist because I don't think there was a 47 in this episode. So yeah, surprising. I was really looking forward to finding that. <laughs> well, we'll have to look next time. I, I, I figure it's got to be in a Minoski written episode next, next time we see it. So, uh, to support, uh, to support, you know, give us some feedback and connect with us. Uh, there are a number of ways, um, go to, goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. In fact, we got uh, our voicemail from that. Oh, one other thing we should mention. We got a voicemail from Steve who just wanted to let us know that, uh, you know, he was enjoying the podcast and just letting us know he didn't have any feedback for this episode because he hadn't watched it yet. But uh, I just want to thank Steve for uh, just letting us know that he likes what we're doing. So, um, 
you can you can call 304-837-2278 and leave a voicemail on that Golden Spiral Media voice line. You can send us email and leave us feedback that way. Uh, Star Trek GSM at gmail.com. And uh, you can especially connect with us and leave feedback through the Facebook group. And we're getting people joining practically every day. Um, we've got a couple today again. That's at facebook.com slash group slash Star Trek Discovery Podcast. And we also got uh, some feedback from Ken from Chicago on Twitter. So that's Star Trek GSM as well. The deadline for feedback for next next episode is Monday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central. So if you're um, watching on Netflix overseas, just get us your feedback as soon as you watch. Yep, we like to get these shows out as quickly as possible. So we've got a pretty short turnaround window for uh, feedback between airtime and recording time. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're, we're trying to work on a schedule, trying to get things down. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll improve on the release cycle as we go. But, uh, I think we're, we're also trying to make sure that we bring out a good show and quality stuff. And, you know, if it takes a little bit more time to get it out and, you know, to sound good and to have good content, it's probably worth that little extra time. Um, I know, I know for one, I can't stand podcasts that sound terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've, I started my podcast career because a couple of friends of mine who are professional recording engineers, uh, told us how to set it all up. So I, I don't think I could live it down if I put out a, a shoddy production. Uh, okay. So uh, actually we got a couple of, uh, five star reviews this week from, uh, iTunes and Apple podcasts. Uh, we got a five-star review in the U S from, I'm not going to try to pronounce this. It's J N I E M E R G. And the headline on that was the best discovery podcast. So thank you very much for that one. We also got one from Australia and it, and it was titled beam aboard. And that was another five-star review. And it was from. Nat John Smythe or Smith. That might have been Nathan. I'm not sure if that was you, Nathan. Thank you for the review. Uh, we're still working on our Patreon, but we'll have information for that maybe next week. I don't know. Um, it's been kind of a whirlwind so far. We're, we're already five episodes deep after about a week and a half. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, now that the pacing is caught up, we, we should have more time for the extracurricular bits of the show. Yeah. We'll, we'll hopefully get that worked out you know this this coming week or maybe next week at the latest uh ways that you can support the network uh is to go to goldenspiromedia.com slash support we don't have any information about the next episode other than to say that it's season one episode four we already gave the title the very long the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry and I think that I heard that was the second longest episode in Star Trek history for a title. I think it was like, um, for the world is hollow and I've, I have sc- touched the sky from TOS is a longer title. So that, that must have been a heck of a title card to produce. I know. 
Does that even fit on a clapboard? <laughs> that, that can't possibly fit on a clapboard. No way. No, it must have been dot, dot, dot. I could I could see this one also probably be the butcher's knife, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but that's it for this week. So I'm Brian. And I'm Adam. Peace and long life. And live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs>